tonight we're f- continuing with our series from Joshua, and we're digging in. I mean, we're spending a lot of time on different stories and so many positive faith-affirming aff- stories in the book of Joshua, some of them are kind of challenging, and tonight is one of those. Some of those kind of make you scratch your head a little bit and wonder, okay, why did God do that? Uh, why did that happen, and, and why did that get recorded in the Bible for us to read about? And those, I like to struggle with those. I like to, I like to chew on those and think about what is it that the Spirit wants for me to hear out of this difficult story. And so one of those will be tonight, but I wanted to start out with a story that's told about a little boy, five years old, six years old, who was riding around the block uh, close to his house as fast as he could, just around and around and around the same block. And a police officer who was there watching one of the intersections wasn't paying much attention to the boy at first. But after that kid went and ran around the block about a dozen times, he's like, what is this kid doing? And so eventually the policeman rolled down his window and got the kid to stop. He said, hey, hey, boy, what are you doing? Uh, what's going on? And the boy said, well, I'm riding my tricycle. And he said, well, yeah, I can see that. But why do you keep riding around, and, uh, riding around and around and around? And the kid said, I'm running away from home. And the police officer, trying to be smart, I guess, said, you know, you're just going in circles. Why don't you cross the street, you know? And, and the boy said, Mama said, I can't cross the street. I can't cross the street. And that story, it speaks, I think, to obedience. Even in our rebellion, even in our trying to stretch out and do things our own way, uh, obedience can keep us close to home. And in the end, obedience keeps us close to the one who loves us more than any other. And we talked about that a little bit last week when we saw the Battle of Jericho. We'd spent two weeks on that, and we talked about Jericho last week, and And in terms of military strategy, it didn't make a lot of sense because basically the strategy for the capture of Jericho, if you're just looking at it, at what they did, um, what the Israelites did, it was a series of military parades. That is essentially all they did. They paraded around the city of Jericho. One time every day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, and then a little music, some trumpet blasts, and a great shout from the people, and the walls came tumbling down. So if you just look at what the Israelites did, it was a series of military parades. Um, But there's more going on, isn't there? This is not really a military strategy. They're not going to teach this at war colleges. They're not going to teach this in military history books as a strategy to be copied. This is not a military strategy. It is a spiritual strategy. Um, It is about obedience. It is about Israel realizing why it is they are going to experience victory. And it's not because of their own might. It's not because of their advanced weapons or sophisticated military strategies. It's because if they're successful, it's because they're relying on God. And so we talked about that in that story. Essentially what happened at Jericho with these, I think you could almost call them ridiculous instructions. Okay, you're going to capture the city by just walking around it. God was, going, was wanting to see if they would follow his instructions. 
God was giving them a test of obedience, or would they lean into their own wisdom? Would they lean into their own might? And for the most part, Israel followed God's instructions, and in the end, we know that was a a categorical victory and very intimidating for the rest of the, tri- uh, the, rest of the Canaanite peoples around Israel, uh, this victory over Jericho. And kind of going back to that idea of obedience tonight, there are essentially two ways that you can look at obedience. And the first way, obedience to God, the first way that you can look at obedience to God is a restrictive kind of way of looking at obedience. Obedience is seen mostly as an encumbrance, okay? Mostly as a burden to be endured. And this view sees obedience to God as something that holds a person back, that tamps down on the potential or the freedom of a person. And this is a very old way of viewing obedience. goes all the way back to Adam, Eve, and the Garden of Eden because essentially that's how they chose to view obedience. Um, They were given, if you think about it, they were given by their creator, the one who gave them life, they were given virtually unlimited possibilities to create, to dream, to do, to imagine, um, to build. But there was that one command, right? Enjoy yourselves, uh, create and build and imagine, just don't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the end, they chose to see God, rather than viewing this limitless potential and freedom that he gave them, they tended to see that one instruction, that one prohibition as limiting. They believed that God was holding out on them. That they could could be like God. Remember, that was the temptation. If they would eat of that tree that God had forbidden them to eat from. Um, And so instead of choosing to to see what God had given them as as being so open-handed and generous and loving and and freeing, they chose rather to see uh, what God had done as restrictive, as limiting. And in the end... They disobeyed, and it brought not freedom, but death into their world. And it drove a wedge in their relationship, not only their relationship with God, but if you read Genesis chapter 3, it drove a wedge between them, between, brought hostility between Adam and Eve. But there's another way. So that's one way to see obedience. It's restrictive. It's God trying to hold you back. But there is a far different way of seeing obedience, and, and we're going to talk about that tonight as well. It's, it's the way of love. It's the way of trust. It's the way of, I'm going to keep circling the block here because I want to stay close to home. I want to stay close to the one who loves me. It, it's one that views obedience as a pathway to, to life and, and to freedom. And it understands that freedom, uh, rather obedience to God makes me more, not less. It does not diminish me, but it unleashes me to become my best self. 
And for these God-loving souls that see obedience this way, then obedience is a beautiful thing that leads away from diminishment and death. What Adam and Eve discovered, and it leads to this potential in Christ. And so obedience keeps us close to home, and ultimately it keeps us close to the one who loves us. I like to think about obedience um, as like guardrails on a windy mountain highway. I've confessed to you all before, I am afraid of heights. I get very nervous when I'm in Colorado on a trip and I'm driving. And I do like to be the driver because I'm less nervous, but I don't like to get close to the edge of the road. And I'm very appreciative when the highway department has put guardrails there to keep me from going over the edge. Um, But you could, I guess, look at those guardrails and think, how incredibly restrictive, right? I mean, I could go off into that vast expanse. I could experiment with that. I could see what that's going to be like. But these guardrails, they're holding me back. Of course, that would be absurd, right? I mean, the guardrails are keeping you alive. The guardrails are keeping you safe. The guardrails are making sure that you arrive at that destination uh, that you're trying to reach, that you're moving forward on your journey instead of lying in a big twisted uh, heap of metal uh, in the valley there, right? So the question then is, how do you see obedience to God? Is it Is obeying his word something restrictive? Does it rob you of freedom and joy? Or do you see it as being loving guardrails that your creator has set up to keep you protected and safe and moving forward along the journey of life. Well, tonight, we're going to see both of these perspectives represented in our first week on the battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 7. Now, in the book before Joshua, in Deuteronomy, God had reminded the people Um, that he was speaking to them, that he was orienting them, that he was guiding them because of his great chesed, his great love for them, and that everything that he gives in terms of commandments, he gives because he, their father, he has their best interests at heart. So listen to this word from the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verses 6 to 11. God says, for you are a holy people. You belong to the Lord your God. Of all of the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. You were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the impressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, get this down, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is faithful 
God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love, his hesed. He lavishes that love on those who love him and who obey his commands. So that's the backdrop for the stories that we have. Like, in fact, by the way, that, that text almost feels to me like a wedding ceremony. It feels like this declaration of, of love from one heart to another. Faithful God who keeps, his, who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations, who lavishes his unfailing love on those who, who love him, who's he, who he's in relationship with, and those who keep his commands. You are mine. God says. Sounds like a wedding. You are mine, God says. I've chosen you, he says. And I didn't choose you because you were the strongest and you were the best and you were the biggest, baddest nation around and you're just better than everybody. God said, no, that's not why I chose you. God said, I chose you and you were the weakest. I chose you and you were the smallest. And your, your beauty and your value comes from the fact that the God of the universe has chosen you to be his people. And through Israel, for gener generations and generations, as you read the Old Testament, it's not that Israel is that special and that great, um, but God continues to, to honor this covenant, and he uses Israel to, to be a model for the rest of the world, for all of the Gentiles. This is what it looks like to live in relationship with God. This is how gracious God is, how forgiving God is, how God uh, reveals his will, how God shows a better life to his people. And centuries later, through Christ, um, the whole world will have the opportunity to be a spiritual Israel, to come into this special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But in this Deuteronomy text, God basically says, you can trust me. I'm God, I love you, I will always keep my word. If you follow me, if you stay within the guardrails that I have set up for your protection and for your blessing, I will bless your socks off. You're not going to believe what it's going to look like. Um, now, I'm going to love you no matter what. I've set my heart on you. That's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I've set my heart on you. Uh, my love for you is not conditioned on you obeying all of my instructions perfectly, but if you follow me, you're going you're gonna to find out how great it is to be in this special relationship with me, what life is all about. If you obey, um, you're going to grow and prosper. If you disobey, you're going to find disappointment and disgrace. It's not that I stopped loving you, but you're choosing to step outside of my very best for you. So back to the guardrails analogy. If you stay within the guardrails, you're going to move down the road to this amazing destination. If you choose to go over the rails or ignore them, you're going to get knocked around. You're going to get wounded. You're going to get hurt. And God didn't just talk about loving Israel. God walked the walk. And he even goes through a bit of the resume there, doesn't he? He talks about how they lived in slavery century after century in Egypt. It was not good. And he rescued them. He delivered them. God, uh, they cried out to him. He heard their prayers. He answered their prayers. Through these amazing miracles, these plagues and these wonders, he brought Pharaoh and Egypt to their knees. Later, 
course, he opens the seas for them, and they cross on dry land, and he delivers them from their enemies, the chariots of Israel. And then he chooses to speak to his people. He wants them to know him. He wants to be known by them. On Mount Sinai, he shares his will, his instructions with them. So he didn't just work on behalf of these special chosen people. Um, He speaks with them. He gives them the law. He shares his plans for them and how much he cares for them to bless them and to set them as a nation apart. And then, we read this a couple of weeks ago, he parts the waters once again at Jordan. He heaps them up, right? Uh, They heap up, and, and there's dry land again, crossing over the Jordan River in flood stage. They're able to cross the river on dry land. He shows his love for them. He releases his power, his grace over his people. Then he tells them to walk circles around the city of Jericho. They did that. He gives instructions. They follow those instructions, and miracles ensue. It's great. But, Not everyone, it turns out, followed the instructions that God gave his people with respect to Jericho. Not everybody stayed within the guardrails. God had a very special command for his people. I'm going to deliver Jericho into your hands. You're not even going to have to fight. But this city, the first city in the promised land, the first battle, It's mine. And all of the plunder of this city is for me. It is to be dedicated to the Lord. You are not going to enrich yourselves off of the spoils of Jericho. That was his very simple instruction. Now the cities to come, they will be able to take uh, plunder from those cities, but not Jericho. Now since A... And so they um, they take Jericho... And everything is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord from Jericho. Now we find out at Ai, Ai is the next city after Jericho that needs to fall, the next domino in the promised land that needs to fall. And it is a much smaller city than Jericho. It should be much much less difficult in terms of, of military conquest. It should not be nearly as difficult as Jericho. And since Ai is much smaller than Jericho, much less threatening than Jericho, Joshua, General Joshua, decides to take a much smaller force up into the mountains to take this city. Uh, and to the nation's surprise and great discouragement, Israel is routed outside the gates of Ai. They are sent in full flight, running back down the mountain passes that they had come up, and they suffer a number of casualties as well. A number of of soldiers of Israel are killed by the defenders of the city of Ai. Joshua chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as these rock quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites, so this is the broader people, when when these fleeing soldiers returned back to the main camp, the Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. Post-Jericho, their courage is off the charts. Post-AI, it's all gone. It has melted away like the spring snows. So what happened? This should have been easy street compared to Jericho. 
Well, Joshua, at least at first, he didn't know what happened. Um, he was devastated, just as everybody else was, at this collapse, at this defeat at, at Ai. And so he goes before the Lord. He tears his clothes. He throws himself on the ground before God. He's looking for answers. He's agonizing over this defeat. And then this is from the message, uh, Joshua 7, 10 and 11. Th this is from the message. God said to Joshua, get up. Why are you groveling? Israel has sinned. Essentially, the Lord says, hey, Joshua, this is no time to pray. Get up. You know what happened, or at least you should have a pretty good idea what happened. Sort it out. Deal with it. Now, this is, this is unexpected, okay, I think you could say. Um, typically in the Bible and certainly in our own lives, we, we tend to think people need more prayer, not less prayer. Um, we need to be a praying people. But in this case, God tells Joshua, who's on the ground praying before him, stop praying. Get up. You see, if I'm praying about something when I already know what God has asked me to do, that's a problem. If prayer for me has become a delaying tactic, like I know God needs me to do this and this, but I'm just going to keep praying about this. Um, that's a bit of a problem. Um, so here's a lesson that I think we need to apply to our lives in, in, in some situations. Hey, there are a whole lot of things that I don't need to pray about. Okay, hear me out before you get up and walk out of here. Okay, there are a lot of things I know what God wants me to do. There is no mystery. In, in my marriage and in my relationship with my kids and in decisions at work to be ethical or unethical, I don't need to have a discussion with God about those things. He's already given me my, my walking orders. So I just need to do that stuff. Prayer, I guess in some situations, it looks in this story, it can become sort of like spiritual busy work, um, sort of filler, when, when it becomes a substitute for obedience, for action. Now, I'm not telling you to pray less, all right? That's not the lesson from tonight's sermon. But there are situations where I don't need to pray about this. God has told me what to do. I need to do it. And Joshua is sincerely crying out to God. He's pouring his heart out to God when God says, get up, quit groveling. You know what you got to do. And it didn't take long at all for Joshua to figure it out. I mean, there was one instruction that was given after Jericho. Don't take those, don't enrich yourselves. Don't haul the plunder off of yourselves. So somebody had violated that. Somebody had broken that very simple instruction, and it didn't take long to figure out what had happened. After, after the battle of, of Jericho, this fellow named Achan, a prominent leader of a family, he had been disobedient. He had taken plunder. He had taken lots of plunder um, for himself, for his kids, for his grandkids. I mean, he's probably saying, I'm just taking care of my family here, you know. And no doubt family members had helped him with this as well because guess what? The plunder was buried under the family tent. 
I mean, he had, I'm sure he had the grandkids and everybody out there shoveling. Let's make a hole here because we've got to hide this stuff. I mean, he knew he had done wrong. And it's clear from the way they're hiding the spoils, they knew what they had done wrong. So he's using stealth, he's using deception to try to get away with this, to try to hide all the goods that he stored up for himself. But everyone else had been faithful. I mean, all of the tribes, all of the clans, all of the families, everyone else had been faithful. Everyone else had followed the Lord's instruction. They had honored God. They had set apart the spoils of Jericho for the Lord. Um, Achan, on the other hand, had looked to enrich himself and improve the situation of his family. Essentially, he reasoned, I know what God said, but I think I know better. I think I know better. And because of his greed and at a deeper level because of his disobedience, a number of Israelite soldiers had been killed at Ai. And because of his greed and because of his disobedience, the army had been routed at Ai. And also because of his disobedience, he and his family lose their lives. Like I said, it's not an easy one. It's one you kind of wrestle with. I'm not sure, that doesn't feel right. I mean, all of the Israelites had to stone Achan and his family because of their disobedience. It's really harsh. It's really severe. And I want to share with you just a few thoughts about disobedience tonight. I mean, usually I like to focus on the positive, but let's talk about it. Let's talk through this a little bit. Um, What do we find about the heart of disobedience in this story? Um, What happens when we ignore the guardrails, when we figure we've got it better sorted out on our own, God, we don't need you on this one, Um, when we choose to act against God's will? We know what his will is, but we're going to do something different. Well, one thing is we find that disobedience is, at least in this story, and I think in a more general sense it holds up, disobedience to God is fueled by mistrust. There's just not complete trust that God's will really is the best, really is the correct course of action. Um, God, in this case, I don't really think you know what's best for me. I don't think you know what's best for my family. Um, Sure, God had defeated Egypt God had opened the Red Sea. God had stopped the Jordan River. God had handled, handed Jericho over. But hey, what if he decides to shut the blessings off? Maybe the Lord's provided up until now. You know, we don't have the manna anymore. God's not sending the food from heaven anymore. Um, so I better hedge my bets and have kind of a just-in-case plan uh, if God does decide to take, stop take caring of me and stop take caring of my family. I mean, really, God's not going to let anybody take any of the spoils out of Jericho. There's a lot of great stuff at Jericho. And that doesn't make any sense. What's the deal with that? And so Achan just wants to make sure he and his family are going to be taken care of. Put a little extra in their bank account there. Um, Because he's really, in the end, not 
totally sure that God is going to actually provide and take care of him. There's a lack of trust here. Another thing about disobedience, it involves, and again, I think it's true in this story for sure, but also in a broader sense, disobedience is motivated by an underappreciation for how God has taken care of me in the past. It ignores all of the ways that he has been taking care of me over the past years. I mean, God, um, it kind of reasons like this. I've taken care of myself up to this point. Why should I start trusting you now? The truth is, for Achan, every breath of air he had ever ever since his infancy sucked into his lungs was a gift provided him by the Lord. Every meal that he ate, every opportunity that he had enjoyed, these were gifts from the Lord. His life had been a gift from the Lord. Achan, all that he had from his health to his intellect uh, to his abilities, all, his family, it all happened because God had taken care of him. And an ungrateful spirit, it doesn't see that. It's blind to the ways that God has been providing. And a key, maybe the most important key to our worship why we gather, why we sing praises, why we live lives of, of worship and adoration, um, to our desire to honor God and to follow God. The key is an understanding, I think, an understanding of just how much we owe God. Just how well he has taken care of us. And Joshua seems to get it. He does. I mean, when things get hard for Joshua, he drops to his knees, gets on his face, and starts praying to the Lord. Achan, on the other hand, uh, starts looking out for number one and starts burying the treasure. Starts hiding everything. Here's another big thing about disobedience. Disobedience always impacts others. It always hurts others. He hurt his wife. He hurt his kids. He hurt his grandkids and generations to come by his selfishness and by his disobedience. He's thinking, I know, hey, I'm only hurting myself. I mean, I'm putting myself at risk here. Did Achan know that soldiers unrelated to him and his decision that those soldiers would die because of his selfish choice. I mean, he didn't think about that. Did Achan think the entire army is going to be routed at Ai because I've disobeyed the Lord and hidden some stuff for myself? Did he th I, I doubt if he thought that. Did Ai think, but I mean, in the end, I don't know what he thought, but in the end, his disobedience destroyed him. It destroyed his family, and his disobedience brought this harvest of defeat and discouragement to the people of God around him, people who were counting on him, people who had done their part to honor God and were counting on 
other members of the family of God to do their part. And this is the thing. We're very independent people. We're Americans, and Texans maybe are even a notch more independent, right? Um, But we are God's people. We are connected. I mean, if you want me to go New Testament on you, we are brothers and sisters. I mean, the language in Scripture makes it so clear that we are bound. One baptism, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one hope. We are bound together. We are connected. And the effects of our decisions, good decisions, faithful decisions, righteous decisions, those ripple. And the effects of our decisions, the bad ones, the selfish ones, they ripple into our marriages, into the lives of our children, into our church community, and ripple out into the world around us. That's just how it is. It's not fun to talk about, but we see it here and we know it's true because we've seen it in our own lives. How disobedience can cause so much damage, not just to one person, but to others that are connected to that person. And disobedience, I think, can be triggered by this lack of appreciation of how much we owe the Lord. And it can be triggered by a lack of appreciation for this spiritual principle, right? Like, I think I can just make my own decisions here, and it's not that, it's not that simple. So did Achan realize that his disobedience was, we don't know. But we are made by God. We are loved by God. In fact, um, there is no one in your life who has ever come close to loving you like God the Father loves you. Just think about that. Not your mom, not your grandma, not your spouse. There is no one in your life. And there are people who love you. But there is no one whose love for you comes close to the love that God has for you. You are chosen, you are precious, you are special to God. And his word, look, you can look at God's word as being restrictive and limiting or knowing that it comes from this heart of love. You can see God's will, God's instructions for you as a pathway to abundance and blessing. How did Jesus see it? Well, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, talked about it a lot of places, but here's one of them. Jesus once said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Not restricted, limited, tamped down, held back. No. <laughs> Those are the blessed ones. Obedience in the end, it keeps us close to home. And it keeps us close to the one who loves us more than any other. Let's bow our heads and pray about this and then we'll sing to our Lord. God, tonight, just know our hearts. We are so thankful. We 
can't even begin to count the ways that you've taken care of us and blessed us since the day we were born. You know us so well. You've counted even the hairs on our heads. We are precious to you. And Father, we just delight in that and that you have allowed us to be adopted into your family and to address you as Father. It's amazing. And Lord, for the times that we have viewed your instructions, your word as being restrictive, as holding us back, taking away our freedom, we repent. And we cry out to you as our Abba. We want to be close to you. We want to enjoy all that you have laid out for us. We don't want to miss out on any of your blessings. And as the Lord Jesus told us, blessed are those who hear your word and obey. We want to be those blessed people Jesus was talking about. And Lord, we are connected. And I pray that you will help us in this delicate dance of being a family, of being brothers and sisters. Help us to to lift each other up to encourage each other, and every once in a while, yeah, to hold each other accountable. We ask that your Holy Spirit will help us on this journey together. This is our prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Amen.